Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When God brings death, the devil brings the heirs. Swedish proverb. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 27.0, The Swedish Deluges, part 1. From 1655 to 1660, Sweden fought a series of wars against multiple enemies, amidst some of the most intriguing foreign developments and shattering alterations to the political status quo of Europe since the Thirty Years' War. By the end of this five-parter, you should be able to understand how the next phase of wars between the Dutch, French, English and Spanish came about. It's an essential background war because it establishes Sweden's strategic position for the next few episodes, as well as explaining why Poland and Denmark were less than willing or able to intervene after it. It also contains a great amount of diplomatic manoeuvring, especially when certain powers become worried that Sweden may be going too far and upsetting the balance of power across Europe to too great an extent. The lessons of this war reverberate throughout successive decades, in particular for Louis XIV when he attacks the Dutch without prior consideration of the consequences. Sometimes when you make diplomacy fail deliberately, not every state will be willing to let you have free reign. As we'll see though, Sweden did not necessarily begin the series of devastating attacks against the Poles that history has deemed the deluge, but it did capitalise upon them, make the conflict effectively theirs, and transform the war into one which suggested sweeping alterations to sensitive European regions that some states were just not willing to accept. In this episode we get into the background. We examine Sweden's domestic and dynastic situation, as well as its Polish neighbour and the problems that this Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth faced. Without further ado then, I will now take you to the year 1648.
Sweden, was virtually unrecognisable in 1648 compared to his 1600 self. After emerging from an unwinnable war between Poland, Denmark and Russia by 1620, Sweden had spent the decade after consolidating its position and attempting to secure itself against the threats posed by its numerous enemies. Denmark dominated the Sound and was the economic powerhouse of the Baltic Sea. Poland-Lithuania was a huge confederation of militarily impressive states that collectively refused to recognise the legitimacy of the newly crowned Gustav Adolf on the Swedish throne. Russia, though distant and disorganised, posed a threat for the future that even at this stage could not be overlooked. In short, when Gustavus Adolphus ascended to the throne of Sweden in 1611, he faced a morass of problems. Yet, when the daughter of the late king surveyed the situation in the Baltic in 1648, she was greeted with a realm befitting the offspring of Gustavus Adolphus the Great, who had trounced imperial armies and established his legend before falling in his prime on the battlefield in 1632. The Thirty Years' War had provided as many boons to Sweden's fortunes as it had highlighted the very serious problems that the state needed to address. Sweden had won many a victory and had definitively arrived on the European great power scene. It had, by 1648, defeated its enemies many times over, in the Danish case heavily and convincingly, and had established a position in the Baltic that was undoubtedly secure. At least, it appeared secure. Sweden's military reputation actually solidified its empire as much as its actual military power could. This was a good thing because, having emerged from Scandinavia as a rural, resource-short strip of land in the early 1630s to claim a key position among its French and Dutch allies, Sweden remained trapped in its empire with none of the material or economic benefits accrued to other European empires. It didn't possess the entrepot trade in its Baltic ports that the Dutch could boast of, nor did it have the large population and wealth of materials that the French could lay claim to. Its overseas outposts in New Sweden, based in the modern-day US state of Delaware, returned meagre fractions of the benefits seen from the Dutch or English colonial efforts. Sweden was neither an economic trade centre, despite its monopoly on ports across the Baltic and in northern Germany, nor was it a rich cultural centre populated by wealthy noblemen. Sweden had arrived purely because it had defeated its enemies conquer new lands and forcibly pulled up a seat and sat down at the table of the great powers. Its newfound position of importance as centre of the Baltic, vital ally of France and troublesome occupier to the North Germans is astonishing when one considers that such a position was only a few decades old. Sweden had come, seen and conquered. The issue now though was whether she could in fact maintain what she had taken, or whether she could only survive through further conflict, by making war feed itself. The reign of Queen Christina of Sweden is worthy of a film, or at least a Netflix series, for its extraordinary nature. Christina had been treated by her father as though she was a son, and although this sounds strange and potentially damaging, she largely excelled at those manly exploits which Swedish society then expected a man of her stature to uphold. Obviously, she had gigantic shoes to fill. As the sole heir to Gustavus Adolphus' empire, she was expected to embody all that he had meant for Sweden except in the female form. By all accounts, she was intelligent, multilingual, cultured and diplomatic, 
Traits that suggest that if she had wanted to rule Sweden as her father had done, from horseback, she was said to have been a talented rider, it would have been a task entirely within the realm of her capabilities. One is struck by the shape Swedish history would have taken had her empire seen a kind of Elizabethan figure on the Swedish throne, what it would have done for Sweden to have a strong woman dictating the martial state to the rest of Europe, what it would have meant had she emulated Elizabeth further and not married. The histories haven't been universally kind to Christina, mostly treating her with intrigue and judging her reign on a scale that varies from a fair assessment of her character to a withering critique of her faults. One historian who opts for the former path, Paul Douglas Lockhart, in his book Sweden in the 17th Century, notes on the Swedish Queen's makeup. Quote, the most loudly voiced concern of the Swedish ruling elite at the time of Christina's succession, and for the remainder of her reign, was the Queen's marital and procreative status. Her personal proclivities in this regard can easily be likened to those of Elizabeth I of England. While she enjoyed the attentions of potential suitors, she had little desire to share her power with a husband, nor to agree to a match that would weaken the power of the monarchy. The Queen's romantic relationships were also complicated by her own paralysing fear of childbirth, and her own self-consciousness about her physical appearance. It was said of Christina that she hated mirrors because they had nothing agreeable to show her. End quote. Christina was clearly determined to be her own woman. Whatever issues she may have had with her own self-confidence, when it came down to the issue of marriage, she dug her heels in tenaciously. The match that had been set up for her, the son of Gustavus Adolphus's sister and thus Christina's cousin Charles Gustav, later to be Charles X, was just as unappealing to her despite the fact that the two were good friends. On the other end of the critical spectrum, Jill Lisk, in her book The Struggle for Supremacy in the Baltic, 1600-1725, is far less accommodating of what she interprets as inherent flaws in Christina's character. Lisk notes scathingly of Christina, quote, For all her brilliance, Christina was vain, unstable, autocratic and selfish, with very little common sense. She failed completely to employ her abilities for her country's welfare, and in fact brought Sweden to the verge of bankruptcy and social disruption. At first, Christina appears to have taken a keen interest in the affairs of government and in the welfare of her subjects, but it was not long before the round of official duties and the petty details of administration began to bore her, and she increasingly objected to being kept from her intellectual and artistic pursuits. She did, however, settle the question of the succession to her throne, appreciating the dangers which threatened from the lack of an heir. End quote. Regardless of the differences in opinion between the two authors, what is clear is that Christina desired power but became disenchanted with the prospect of rule. She also became somewhat concerned at the very likely possibility that she would die without issue, placing her country in the hands of yet another regency. Such concerns motivated her to seek the approval of the nobility and council to place Charles Gustave on the throne upon the end of her tenure as queen. She was able to secure such an appointment with much skill and tact. First, she succeeded in positioning Charles as Commander-in-Chief of Sweden's armed forces in late 1648, and over the following years she manipulated the upper and lower classes of Sweden, played one against the other, and convinced the nobility in particular that she was soon to side with the common peasants in Swedish society. 
The Swedish nobility, who deserve a podcast of their own for their extraordinary qualities and uniqueness in Europe, issues which we'll surely encounter later on, were so concerned that Christine was on the verge of cutting them off from their privileges in favour of the unwashed masses that they attempted to strike a deal. If they approved her nomination of Charles Gustavus heir, then she would promise not to try to alter the social status quo of Sweden. Christina, of course, had no intention of becoming a champion of the people, but her actions had secured her favourite heir to the throne. In an act that Michael Roberts, in his article, Queen Christina and the General Crisis of the 17th Century, called a masterpiece of unscrupulous intrigue, the Swedish queen had gotten her way. Now it remained to be seen as she would spend the last of her days in power. It is important that we pause for a moment to illustrate the dire nature of Sweden's economic position. Following the Thirty Years' War and the accumulation of foreign debt and the inheritance of a large army that couldn't possibly be paid off, Sweden had a number of options it could follow to solve the situation. The most obvious would be to acquire more capital and pay the soldiers back, reduce the size of the army and bask in the empire Sweden had seized. However, the underlying problem was that, in the years before where money had been scarce but badly needed, a wholesale, everything must go, sale had begun on the lands owned by the Swedish monarchy. These lands were sold to the nobility, with the result that, on a stunningly large scale, lands once owned effectively by the crown now came under the jurisdiction of the noble families, none of whom were taxed according to Swedish custom, but all of whom now moved the peasants they now owned to work the land for their material benefit. This process grew gradually worse in the last years of the Thirty Years' War, and resulted in a seriously troubled Swedish fiscal system by 1650. The process of reforming this entire ill-advised venture would be the project of many ambitious Swedish monarchs in the future, but Christina made no attempts to solve this issue during her reign, and actually made the problem worse by creating a swathe of new noble families. From 1644 to 1654, the number of noble families in Sweden doubled. These families sought to increase their standing in Sweden by buying up land either in the state or in the far-flung fringes of the empire, northern Germany and elsewhere. Some had come from triumphant campaigns and had been rewarded with title partly because of their success. Others were simply fortunate enough to have been favourites of the queen and received their prize in the form of status. A status in the Swedish court meant little when no wealth could back it up so the decision to sell off Sweden's crown lands made sense in the short term for Christina's court, and in the long term for the self-interested nobility. Although many of course warned against Christina furthering the practice of effectively selling off Sweden's silverware to the highest bidder, ignorance and short-sightedness won out, with consequences that would still be felt by Charles XII in the early 18th century. Such damaging policies were the result of a nobility and crown struggling to maintain and increase what they had acquired, without sufficient home resources with which to do it. For Christina, her reasons for appointing and creating so many new noble families centred upon the hopes she had for diluting the influence of Axel Oxenstierna, if you can remember him from her previous Thirty Years' War special. Although understandably exhausted having essentially guided Sweden on his own authority since Gustavus's death in 1632, Axox still had enough fight in him to oppose much of Christina's desires, including the appointment of Charles Gustav, her failure to marry, and her calls to disband the army. 
Axox became especially concerned at the rumours, soon to acquire validity, that Christina's favouring of Spanish and French officials, like the enigmatic René Descartes, had as much to do with their religious convictions as it did with their cultural splendour. Axox was right to fear in this case because Christina's conversion to Catholicism and her subsequent abdication pretty much captured everything that the Swedish Chancellor hated about the Queen. The final years of Christina's reign were fraught with overspending and backstage intrigue. Almost certainly historians attest Christina had converted to Catholicism by 1651 and this helps to explain her apparently sudden, at least to the nobility that didn't know the inner workings of her mind, announcement of her intention to abdicate in the council session of 1651. For the daughter of Protestantism's champion to cast aside her faith was nothing short of calamitous for Oxens Dierna, and his influence and advice, though Christina did not like it, did much to persuade her to remain on the throne for the next three years, as her successor was given a secure footing from which to launch his reign. Jill Lisk portrays Christina as becoming, quote, more wasteful and extravagant, end quote, almost out of spite against Axe Ox for dropping the guilt bombs on her and forcing her to stay. I don't really buy that line of reasoning. Christina was eager to abdicate, but she was so because of, in my view, mostly selfless reasons. She had undergone her own personal journey of faith that she recognised as irreconcilable with the Lutheran kingdom she ruled over. She never made any attempts to alter the religious laws of Sweden to accommodate her own beliefs, as lesser rulers have done, and which we have seen. Her final years on the throne of Sweden did see lavish spending and the continuation of the selling of lands to the nobility, but by 1651, Christina had so removed herself from the day-to-day administration of ruling Sweden that it is highly unlikely she ever presided over much of it. Her heavy spending involved the attempts to fluff up the Swedish court with colourful characters from foreign lands and increase the cultural splendour of Sweden's countryside with unaffordable building and public works projects. In short, she had her state's interest at heart and wasn't simply fluttering her money away on pointless ventures. Although she bemoaned Axox's influence and his arguments that pressed her to stay, it is highly speculative to suggest that she would have left her Swedish kingdom in 1651, merely two years after Charles Gustav had been approved as her successor, without duly ensuring his safe accession to the throne. Thus, staying behind was not an exercise undertaken so she could spend and live it up in Stockholm. It was the responsible thing, as queen, to do. Furthermore, we should not underestimate the weight of the decision that this 28-year-old queen eventually made. How many other monarchs of her time underwent such a similar transformation? None come immediately to mind, and certainly not in the style or with the grace that Christina did it. Although hardly the most efficient or sensible with money, Christina's decision to stay for a few more years and pave the way for Charles X was probably the best inheritance she could have left behind. Certainly, it was better than everything else she left him. Exposed borders, vengeful enemies, inherent social problems, a swollen nobility, and a state in debt by millions more Reichsthalers every year. Thus, it is worth emphasising the promising political situation Christine left behind her in Stockholm. She had made a clean abdication, and by 1654 had established with all certainty the rule of Charles Gustave who had been groomed for rule, first as a potential husband, then as an heir presumptive, a decade before he actually ascended to the throne. 
As Commander-in-Chief of Swedish Armed Forces, Charles Gustav also understood the strategic problems that faced his kingdom, and the need to solve such issues so as to disband the army and pay off or reduce Sweden's crippling debts. The nobility was another issue. Because they hadn't exactly made it easy for him to succeed Christina, if you remember, the latter had to do some pretty extensive manipulating to even get his succession approved, he owed nothing to that pillar of the state. Yet despite this, much of the nobility did flock to his side upon his coronation on the 6th of June 1654. After having spent many years amongst the armed forces, it was clear that Gustavus Adolphus's blood ran in his veins after all, and that he was every bit his uncle's nephew. As Christina left her place of birth for Rome, Charles Gustav also set upon the task of reforming what he viewed as the central physical problems of the Swedish state. Sweden needed to get its lands from the nobility back, so that the Swedish crown could finally make money for itself again. Charles Gustav managed to make this unenviable task his own. He began slowly with a compromise in the early months of his reign, so that by autumn 1654 the nobility had pledged to return a quarter of all lands received by whatever means since 1632, while the essential lands used for mining, farming and for the allotment of soldiers' lands were to be returned over the next three years. Charles Gustave had grand plans to return all that the Crown had sold, donated or mortgaged. He envisioned many trying council meetings ahead, in which he would have to attempt to persuade the nobility to give up their cash cows for the good of the Swedish Crown, and with the understanding that such losses for the nobility could be made good in some form later down the road. Charles thus had great domestic plans for the future, Yet, when it came down to it, he never had a chance to look that far. Charles Gustave was to be in absentia for almost the entirety of his reign, because he was to spend it commanding Sweden's armed forces in the latest war. A war which, Charles Gustave was about to willingly plunge his desperately in the red state into. For several years, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had been utterly incapable of containing a revolt led by Bogdan Komelnitsky, hetman or leader of the Zaporizhian Cossacks, a Slavic people of modern-day Ukraine. Cossacks have drifted in and out of our narratives on occasion over the previous episodes, and were actually something of a menace for the Poles when they couldn't keep their warlike ways under control. Cossacks habitually raided down south into the Crimea and regularly teed off the Ottoman Empire for that reason, but it should be remembered that the history of the Cossacks, as Eastern Orthodox and frequently Byzantine leaning, was considered separate from the Catholic Poles even at this early stage. In addition, the previous years saw attempts by enemies of the Habsburgs to stir up the Cossacks and entice them to rebel, so as to distract Poland. Such a tactic was high on the list of strategies taken by both Russia and Sweden in the early 17th century. In 1622, the papal nuncio or representative in Warsaw, Poland, noted of the Cossacks with much trepidation that It is impossible to take forcible measures against the Orthodox, for this is prevented by the Cossacks, a warlike and brave people standing watch over the freedom of faith, 
now with appeals, now with threats in their mouths, but always with weapons in their hands. What may sometime come out of these threats, it is easy to guess if we take into account that there are about 60,000 Cossacks, and that they at convenient times do enormous harm, especially in a country like Poland, that is open, and without much fortresses. Statesmen as varied as Richelieu of France, Axel Oxenstierna of Sweden, Bethlen Gabor of Transylvania, and Gustavus Adolphus himself all recognised, as members of the anti-Habsburg coalition at some point or another, the benefits in promoting Cossack rebellion and weakening the centrality of the Polish state. Thus the Cossacks were very much on the radar of Poland's enemies even before the Great Revolt of 1648 broke out, and especially in the earlier days of the Thirty Years' War, when it looked as though Catholic Poland was due to join its Catholic Habsburg brethren and annihilate Protestant influence on the continent. For years, King Vladislav IV of Poland-Lithuania had planned to launch a war against the Ottomans alongside the Russians, to be financed by Venice. He had solicited the aid of the Cossacks because of their status under Polish protection and because the Polish Sejm, or Parliament, proved mostly unwilling to approve his war and provide the troops required. Bogdan at this time was a high-up Cossack in Polish service, sort of an auxiliary general, but still recognised as a definite foreigner despite his time of service. Bogdan had approved the war plans because it suggested that the Poles might give some autonomy back to the Cossacks in return for their aid. The Cossacks had caused a bit of trouble for the Poles back in the mid-1630s, and had seen much of their privileges and independence taken away as a result. So Bogdan believed that by serving Poland in wartime, his people would be rewarded. He was to be disappointed though, because as Frank Sinsin notes in his article, The Khmelnytsky Uprising, a characterization of the Ukrainian revolt, quote, The negotiations dragged on inconclusively for two years, creating an atmosphere that was rife with rumours of a conspiracy between the court and the Cossacks to provoke a war in the southeast and to undermine the position of the nobility and increase the king's powers. End quote. Fear and distrust of the Cossacks following previous revolts reached their apogee, and with the death of Vladislav IV in May 1648, the plan for the Ottoman War died alongside the major barrier against persecuting the Cossacks. Since the years before had seen the Cossacks being more militarised in preparation for their war against Turkey, the presence of so many Cossacks, still in a state of war readiness, implored many Polish magnates and governors to act against them, pushing them out of Polish territory and into their original Ukrainian homeland. Once numerous Cossacks had been placed forcibly in the same area at once, Bogdan began the process of formalising the revolt against the Polish administration he had once served. As Frank Sinsin notes, quote, Bogdan Kamelnitsky, who had once been one of the chief negotiators with the king, fled to the Zaporizhian siege, the traditional Cossack stronghold on the Lower Dnieper. He had been persecuted and arrested by the official of a great magnate and had not received redress from the Polish authorities. He raised the standard of revolt, overthrew the government, installed officers, and was proclaimed Cossack Hetman at the siege. He soon established contact with the Cossack regiments in the settled territory north of the siege. In February, he secured the support of the Crimean Khanate, which was troubled by Vladislav's alliance with Muscovy and his plans to attack the Tatars in initiating a campaign against their suzerain, the Ottoman Sultan. End quote. However, despite early gains in Polish disunity, 
Bogdan proved unable to defeat the Polish forces sufficiently to achieve what he wanted. He faced continued troubles that stemmed from Cossack infighting, Tartar unreliability, and the interference of Transylvania. So he sought outside help in the form of Alexis, the Tsar of Russia. Russia's Tsar was far from willing to allow such an opportunity to pass him by. That the Russian court remembered the humiliation Poland had brought upon its armed forces in the Smolensk War of 1632-34, where years' worth of Russo-Swedish planning had gone up in smoke at the gates of Smolensk, and where Russia had been prevented from joining the anti-Habsburg camp as a result. The Cossacks under Bogdan met a deputation of Muscovites in the city of Paraslav, and convened the Council of Paraslav, or the Ukrainian Cossacks, allegedly pledged their state to Russia. I say allegedly because the meeting has become something of an issue for Russian and Ukrainian historians. For the former, it proved justification during the 20th century for Russian dominion over Ukraine, while for the latter, the entire event grew to be seen as a myth propagated by Russian propagandists. The key point about the event is that no material evidence survives from it. Despite this though, and gingerly avoiding any sense of controversy myself, I'm simply going to state that this was enough for both sides to consider the other allies against the Poles. With the Treaty of Pereslav in place, Alexis subsequently gained the approval of the Russian parliament that he needed to proceed, and war was declared on the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth on the 2nd of November 1653. It was a highly bold act, not only had Alexis declared war against an enemy that had resourcefully and impressively beaten his predecessor, Tsar Michael, in previous years, but the logistical complications surrounding a possible union of Ukraine and Russia were legion. Bogdan's unofficial state was sandwiched between the Ottoman, Polish and Russian empires at a key point of interest for all three. The Crimean Tartars, an Ottoman vassal state at this stage, also looked upon the Cossacks with interest, and would actually align themselves with Bogdan against the Poles, leading to some devastating Polish losses down the road. Because some portions of the Cossack state bordered the Black Sea, soon to be of critical importance for Russia, it was upheld as a step towards the necessary expansion of the Russian state in the mid-17th century. Some in the Russian court were understandably uneasy about perpetuating a conflict that was guaranteed to lead to a continued war in the region, at a time when deflation had crippled the ruble and a number of peasant uprisings had destabilised the Tsardom's authority. Indeed, in consideration of the possible hesitation and weaknesses of Russia, in the early years of the revolt Bogdan had even appealed to his neighbours in the Ottoman Empire for protection, a status which would have effectively transformed Bogdan into a Turkish figurehead. Perhaps such a deal spooked Alexis enough to spur him into action, but regardless of his motives, the Russo-Polish rivalry remained at the centre of foreign relations in the Moscow court. If Alexis had allowed Bogdan's offer to disappear, it may not resurface again, and such a lost opportunity could see Bogdan crushed and the Poles further strengthened. Thus, the decision to make war was announced in the closing months of 1653. After only months of campaigning, it would be clear that this was not the Poland of 20 years before, though. Much like Adolf Hitler had supposed when he spoke of Russia on the eve of Operation Barbarossa, the Polish house was rotten to the core. 
and the Russian forces that were soon to kick this house's door down would set in motion a chain of events that would cause the house's very foundations to crack, crumble, and almost vanish from the map of Europe completely. This war has been divided into five parts for easier listening. You have reached the end of part one, but four parts to the Swedish deluges remain, so check your downloads for the next installment. In this episode we have examined the background details that brought Sweden to 1655, the troubles of Christina, the succession of Charles Gustav, and the internal issues Sweden faced. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We also examined how Sweden's enemy Poland faced its own terminal troubles. The revolt of the Cossacks, which by late 1653 had become dangerously internationalized and had drawn the attention of Russia. Next time, we'll examine the Cossack-Polish struggle more closely as well as the chronic Polish decay, the Russian decision to intervene, and the surprising Swedish reluctance to follow the Russian lead. Thanks for listening, and see you in part two. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.